Hey everybody, it's Dan Dan, and we are diving into a discussion and study of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We are in a chapter right now called More About Alcoholism. And some of us might have thought we were experts, but we need to learn more about it. And the reason why is that in this first part, in the part we've already covered about this chapter, which starts on page 30, today we're on page 34, we find out that there's a lot of things we tell ourselves and aren't true. And that concept that we've been discussing all the way through this study, that a core symptom of alcoholism are commitments we make to ourselves and that are unable to keep. And consequently, we don't keep any of the commitments that we have with other people to any great degree relative to the drink. And it was outlined very well for us in the first part of more about alcoholism, but that's not enough. And Bill, as he wrote this, wants to lay some ideas to rest. One of them is that any lurking notion that you can take a drink has to be smashed. Another one is that we've given ourselves all sorts of permission statements or concepts or ideas out there, like we'll drink only here or only then or only under these circumstances or those, and those things don't work. And so as we get through this, he's going to run us through a couple of stories of people that have tried different things or had different beliefs or thought that they were perfectly fine. And that type of obsession and that lie we tell ourselves sneaks into these people's minds and they drink again, having no defense against the first drink. And we're going to explore that idea right here. So we're on page 34, and the first few words are, for those who are unable to drink moderately. So that's how we're going to open it up today. You guys ready? Here we go. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. Because we've tried a ton of things. We've tried stopping altogether. We've swore we were going to stop altogether. We've pleaded with people. Maybe not everybody. Those people could be judges and police officers. <laughs> we are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. The only requirement for membership in AA is the desire to stop drinking, not the natural, intuitive, instinctual ability to stop drinking because we do not have that. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. Critical statement there, the power to choose. Have you lost the power to choose? All right, the power to choose rests in this idea right here. When you start drinking and tell yourself, make a commitment to yourself that you're only going to have three and you end up having six, you have lost the power to choose. And you might think, no, no, Dan, Dan, I chose to have six. At what expense? because you probably don't choose the consequences that come after that, which is potentials for arrest, potentials for damage to relationships, and on and on. So that's the type of thing. How we maintain the commitments we make to ourselves and others really represents the power to choose. And the deadly part of it is that these commitments happen silently in our own minds. Remember, we have a thinking problem, not necessarily a drinking problem. So he goes on to say, and we'll go back and review that real quick, whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose 
whether he will drink or not. Many of us felt that we had plenty of character, and that's true. A lot of us are of great character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever because we knew this wasn't our real selves. We knew that we aren't demoralized people. We know right from wrong. We want to stop. Yet we found it impossible. Yet we found it impossible. Wow. Hopelessness. Helplessness. Impossible. They all mean the same thing in this book. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism, which means difficult to figure out. I, I, I just, it's a conundrum, a very difficult problem. It may seem like a paradox to many of us because a paradox seems like an unsolvable problem, right? I want to feel better, so I drink. And I drink and I feel better, but then I create all these problems that leave me feeling in a way I don't want to feel, and I want to feel better, so I drink. And I drink and I feel better and I create all these problems and I feel a way I don't want to feel. So, and this goes on and on and on, right? So that's the baffling idea is how do we figure our way out of that conundrum of that problem, that baffling feature of alcoholism? This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. This utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish, no matter how deep or solemn or meaningful the commitment, no matter how hard we promise, how loudly we scream it, that we get on our knees and beg, we can't do it. How then shall we help our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us, one of us being a real alcoholic? The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states, the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. This is the thinking that leads to drinking. The mental states that precede a relapse. Relapse being the cornerstone of the alcoholic. You promised yourself you were going to stop drinking and you drink again. Many of us are able to quit. We are unable to stay quit. Mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. For obviously, this is the crux of the problem. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record. He is a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He is an intelligent man. So he has all that moral character, right? He's a man of good character and good morals, except for a nervous disposition, it says, like we had to have that. Normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. So we discover that there's something about him that Jim doesn't like, and Jim wants to get rid of it. So he decides to use alcohol to get rid of this nervous disposition. Let's see how that goes. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. 
He made a beginning, his family was reassembled, and he began to work as a salesman for the business he lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. For you guys out there that are new to the program or been around forever, you may be either doing this or you've seen it a thousand times. There's step one, two, three. There's step one, two, three, and it's all about me. One, two, three, and it's all about me. I go to meetings and I go because I want to go to the meeting because I want to see my friends. We forget to enlarge our spiritual life. And let's see what happens when we do that. If we stop at step three, let's see what happens. To his consternation. Well, consternation is a strong feeling of surprise. I didn't know what that was. What's consternation? Anyway, to his surprise, to his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had a deep affection. So he quit. He did what was asked of him. He got a lot of this stuff back and went back out and he's at risk of losing it all again. Knowing all this, knowing the consequences that have already happened, not the stuff in the future that could happen, that have already happened, having people in front of him that have successfully quit, we're left with this next sentence. Yet he got drunk again. Incomprehensible demoralization. Here it is. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated. He didn't feel the way he wanted to feel, right? So he felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for the concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive to the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar for I had been going to it for years. So this is a familiar place. It's not a dangerous place. It's not a place that he, se he seems to think he's at risk. He's not walking in there to get drunk. He's a little irritated and he's trying to get over it and be productive, right? Sounds like the right thing to do. So what goes wrong, right? Hmm. I had eaten there many times during the months I was sober. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Here's what goes wrong. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. He thought nothing of who else it might hurt, right? Nothing. Wow, the experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey. Here comes that obsession and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me. So what else would he do? I tried another. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were 
easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. What's interesting about that thought and what we often say to do in here, and this goes back to that, if there's any lurking notion in you, it will come out. It doesn't come out necessarily because you want to drink. It just finds its way into your life unconsciously. And if I can call my sponsor before I take a drink and say something like, hey, you think it'd be all right if I just put the scotch in my milk? I mean, after all, I just had a big meal. You think that might be okay? Maybe I would be exposed to some sense. So you want to call your sponsor, get to a meeting before you take the drink. Before. And what gets us there is this relationship with God. It's going to go into that. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? You may think this is an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched, for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences but there was always the curious mental phenomenon. It's also called curious mental blank spots in these books that parallel with our sound reasoning. (laughs) So the logic in us finds itself a home when it's totally insane. The logic in us, the things that make perfectly good sense in the rest of our lives, like, hey, I should pay this bill. I have the money. Let me pay it. The simple logic of things like that We miss it when it comes to alcohol. It just doesn't make the connection. But there was always the curious mental phenomena that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink, the first drink. That's what sends us over the hill, not the 10th drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. You can't hold you in check. And we've proven this a lot of different ways. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. In some circumstances, we have gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our, here it is, justification, our justification, the way we convince ourselves the way we lie to ourselves, the way we rationalize to ourselves for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happens. And in the light of what always happens also has this alongside it, in light of how it will affect other people. Asking yourself the question, you know, what does love require of me? I love my wife. I love my spouse. I love my kids. I love my job. What does love require of me in that moment? Bam, gone gone. In light of what always happened, that we fail at these things, we don't keep these commitments, right? We now see that when we begin to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be to us, but more importantly, the consequences to the people that love us, right? Our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible, impossible to understand with respect to the first drink as that of an individual with a passion, say, 
for jaywalking. And this is great. He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him, and he is slightly injured several times in succession. You would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. Presently, he is hit again, and this time has a fractured skull. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He tells you he has decided to stop jaywalking for good. But in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. On through the years, this conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises or commitments, his continual promises to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer work. His wife gets a divorce and he is held up to ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head. He shuts himself up in an asylum, hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? You may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We, who have been through the ringer, have to admit if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other respects where alcohol has been involved, we have been strangely insane. So he's mentioned insane. He's driving this point home. We are insane. And the idea of insane could be very stupid. And the idea of insane could be a severe mental illness. And the idea of insane can be thoughtlessness. And it's all these things in here. In this particular context, I think he's talking about the stupid one, right? It says, uh, where alcohol has been involved, we have been strangely insane. Maybe you could say strangely stupid. It's strong language, but isn't it true? Some of you are thinking, yes, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms, but we have not gone to the extremes you fellows did, nor are we likely to. For we understand ourselves so well after what you have told us that such things cannot happen again. We have not lost everything in life through drinking, and we certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. So we're going to stop there because we go into another story right after that, a guy named Fred. But in the meantime, what we've heard today and what we're talking about today is that we have this urge inside of us, this unseen power that has taken us over, that compels us to do things that are enormously selfish, that have no consideration for the consequences, let alone ourselves, but to others that do not take into consideration the promises we have made, the commitments we make to ourselves and other people, that do not take into consideration all the consequences of the past that sit as evidence that we ought not to do it, and that it's the very first drink that starts us down this path. The first drink, not the tenth drink. Important themes in this more about alcoholism. So today, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the insanity as he put it in the book, you know, that, that we're insane in the form of thoughtlessness about other people, that we're insane in the idea of the mental twist, the curious mental blank spots, the fact that we're unable to bring into our consciousness the enormous consequences that follow us drinking 
or the insanity of just doing things that are plain old stupid that we would never choose to do if we weren't drinking. All that crazy stuff we've done while drunk. All the money spent, all the relationships wrecked, all the risks that are taken. Insane as thoughtlessness, insanity as being unable to control ourselves in a variety of ways, doing things we wouldn't do normally, putting ourselves in risky situations we would never recommend anyone else get in. So I hope you guys have a great discussion about these topics.